I love music. I used to love music. I brought down my record player from New York and I'm very Ooh. happy because I got the record player in college and it always lived. It was a Christmas present. So it stayed in New York. So that's a bitch to take on a plane. Well, I love Amtrak because now I bring all my stuff in one big suitcase. Amtrak and they said don't- two full size suitcases per lady. And I said, yeah. yes, honey. <laughs> yes, exactly. And now I brought it down. I only have four records because again, I only got four records during Christmas. And when it did not live with me at all since then, I have not collected anything, but there is. Now I know what the rest of my gifts for you for the rest of your life are now that it is in your presence. (laughs) Speaking of gifts, I'm working on Alana's like Christmas slash birthday gift. And it is the best thing. It is like multi-step elaborateness and it actually has to do with records. It's beautiful. Remember, I hate music now, though. Aaron, at one point, Aaron Keefe, friend of the pod, Aaron Keefe. Friend of the show. <laughs> I was listening to a Hey Riddle Riddle fairly recently, or maybe it was the Patreon or something. And she they all blend wanted together. To, yeah. She wanted to know what, like, listen, what kind of music listeners liked. And then she was like, you're listening to a podcast right now. You probably hate music. And I was like, maybe a little. Maybe music and I are going through a rough patch right now. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History. The good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Lexi, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me no more. And Haley, what's love got to do with it? But... Isn't it just what's love got to do with it? Got to do with it. What I think so. What a secondhand emotion. And I'm Alana, and I believe in life after love. Do you like that? Was that a good flow? Did that work? Okay. I'm a huge fan. I'm like feeling into the mic. Sorry to the editor. I'm the editor. Oops. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> When did we do the first Lady Music episode? I think I was in New York. Okay, so a long ass time ago. It was a a hot minute from starting. It was in 2020, I think, or early, early 2021. So it was sometime between you being in San Francisco and you going back to DC, (laughs) something in there. Um, So anyway, during that time, when that episode about music ladies came out, I was still in grad school. And in grad school, I had a friend named Jerome. Uh, Hi, Jerome. If you still listen, Jerome now works at the Smithsonian in administration, but previously worked at NAMAC as a like public affairs officer, but now is in Smithsonian, big Smithsonian. So we love to see it. And Jerome suggested this lady. That was a lot to tell you that Jerome suggested this lady. Jerome suggested quite a few music ladies, but I ended up picking this one because for reasons we'll talk about at the end. Gertrude. Priggett was born in 1886 in Georgia, 
Both of her parents were minstrel performers, and from a young age, she began performing and touring the vaudeville circuit across the southern United States. Just a reminder, just a trigger warning here, southern United States, late 1800s, early 1900s, blanket warning of the racism. While she was traveling and performing, she met Will Pa Rainey. Pa was a nickname. The two married, and Gertrude adopted the stage name that she would become a legend under, quote, Ma, unquote, Rainey, to, like, match her husband. The duo performed as Ma and Pa together, traveling with African-American minstrel performance groups. When Ma and Pa split a decade later, Ma kept her stage name and started her own performance group, Madame Gertrude Ma Rainey and her Georgia Smart Set. Ma became well-known for her comedy and over-the-top stage presence. While traveling with other performers, she took an interest in blues music and began to incorporate it into her own acts. Not only did this allow her to captivate crowds, but it also provided her an outlet to speak openly about Black life in America, which was something Black women couldn't really talk about at the time. So she used her music as a channel to have that conversation with her crowds. At the time, many Black entertainers were exploited and underpaid by the agencies that booked them. Rainey's fans were from diverse backgrounds, though the venues where she performed still segregated their seats. Rainey's signature gritty voice paired well with her raw songwriting style. Rainey's songs often focused on the hardships of women and frequently advocated that women did not need man in their lives. Seems to be a common theme in music. We still hear it today. But that women could in fact act out as much as men if they wanted to. And like the repercussions weren't real anyway. Like just do what you want. You don't need no man. You can be a man, basically. I mean, you could do whatever you want. Basically, Ma Rainey was like, do what you want. In 1923, she recorded her first album with Paramount Records, and in the following years recorded many songs, quite a few of which became hits that have stood the test of time and remain popular today, even if we don't realize that they are her songs. One of her songs, C.C. Ryder, was recorded with Louis Armstrong, and according to Time, one of my sources, it has since been covered by Elvis Presley, Ray Charles, Janis Joplin, and Old Crow Medicine Show, so if you've heard any of those versions, that's actually a song she wrote. And all of those people are very famous, so you may have heard one of those versions of that song. Sadly, Paramount decided Rainey's style was out of fashion and dropped her after her extensive success. So that's suspicious. Eventually, Rainey settled back in Georgia, where she lived with her brother, and she ran two theaters there, and Rainey passed away at the age of 53 from heart disease. Rainey is often credited with setting a template for later Black performers who took the genre she created and built upon it with their own unique styles. During her life, Rainey mentored the famous singer Bessie Smith, who she may have been romantically involved with, so there are people who say she might have been bisexual or a lesbian. We can't ask her, so we don't know. In 1982, August Wilson, one of America's most renowned playwrights, published Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, inspired by the song of the same name. The play takes place in the recording studio while Rainey works on the song Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. The play was adapted for film and published on Netflix in 2020. The film was Chadwick Bosman's final appearance, released shortly after he passed away, and starred other iconic Black American actors, including Viola Davis as Ma. The trailer is on our YouTube playlist if, if Haley puts it there, <laughs> um, but I sent the links, so. Beautiful. That's all we need. <laughs> um, and I watched it when it first came out with my parents. It's a really good film, but it's very much recorded in the style of a play. So it just might not be for everyone. If you like plays and you're interested in black history and you like the, the play style of film, if you've seen um, One Night in Miami, it's filmed in a really similar way where it's it feels like a play even though it's being filmed. And you'll love it if you like that kind of thing. 
And if you ever visit Columbus, Georgia, her house is on the Columbus Black Heritage Trail and is a museum dedicated to her life with some of her original furniture, including her piano. And uh, if you can't make it to Georgia, I included a video of the house and one of the women who works at the house talking about the house. So you can take a virtual tour. That's it. Opening that history book to somewhere around like the late 1700s, early 1800s to this playwright, specifically opera playwright and musicologist. Yes, that is a real word. I googled it and it's someone who studies music from the history of it to the science and everything in between. Besides having a cool job title, her claim to fame was being one of the few women to be nominated to the Comédie Française my French, mediocre. Her music is not. The Comédie de France, Française was birthed in 1680 and it's the oldest active theater in the world. And it's actually one of the few state theaters in France. So it's basically own, operated and just run solely on money that France gives. And it's not heavily relying on donors, admissions, and so-and-so, which I think is kind of great. I kind of think of like the Smithsonian and if like the Smithsonian had theaters, that's kind of how it works. But again, I did not do too much research into the theater because we're here for Alexandrine Sophie. And also in her name, it's sometimes Sophie Debar. So I'm gonna go with Sophie because I really actually like the name Sophie. So how did Sophie get to the point of being nominated or accepted into this very exclusive, especially at the time, French circle theater group. She grew up in the musical bloodline, if you will, with a father who was a marquee and an opera singer mother. And her parents just gave her that, that sweet, sweet musical education. So thanks Charles Jean de Champagrand and Madeleine Virgie Vian. Subtle side note. I was reading this like old archive article and it, the first thing about her parents were like the unwed parents or the like out of wedlock. And I was like, why, why is this the first thing of her bio? And I don't think it also mattered because it was clear that both her parents had like a hand in how she grew as like an opera singer and musicologist. So like good for them for uh, co-parenting so well. And along with her parents, some musical names that kind of popped up, specifically composers or music theorists, for her gaining just education for music were Andre Goretti, Nicholas Rose, Roz, and Andre Boldy. Again, I am so sorry for that, these pronunciations. Please leave us an audio like message uh, in our Gmail pronouncing these correctly. And then for singing, she specifically studied from Pia Garant and Jean Alivio. I don't know where this accent is trying to come from. We're going to just move past my embarrassment. After many years of honing in on this skill, she landed in melodrama operas were her specialty. She landed with writing both the words and music to a lot of her operas and plays, her specialty was melodrama operas. And one of her more popular comedic plays was La Suite d'une Balmasque. 
And it actually ran for years, having two, like about 200, I think it was 246 to 250 actual like runs of the show. That That's a lot. Like even by Broadway standards, that that's huge. And we're now thinking of like early 1800s for a woman. And like everyone knew that she, this was like her baby. And a lot of her plays, like she got the full credit for. It was not, hey, here's this dude, or I didn't even see anything towards like a husband, like helping out even, or her parents. It was like her girl boss and her way to the musical top. And in her old age, she actually published a lot about music theory and like music history. And then just her memoirs in general about growing up in like the theater life. And in the show notes, I've listed all the titles of both the plays and writings I can confirm that she produced. And I will not torture your eardrums with me trying to pronounce everything, but that's Sophie, Alexandrine Sophie. I have a short story today uh, about a group of ladies. So I can't do star signs and birthdays, but I promise that this is a great story anyways. The International Sweethearts of Rhythm were an all-female interracial jazz band founded in 1937 in Mississippi, of all places. All of the women were American, but because there were Black women as well as Chinese, Mexican, and Hawaiian women, their band looked international. And the label kind of helped them skirt Jim Crow laws. I'm not sure exactly how, but Jim Crow was fucked up. So who cares how? It just matters that they did it. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Were they ever called exotic or do you get to that? Because I feel like this is... The- I am unsure as to whether or not they were called exotic. You get my vibe though. If, like, I do get your vibe. Yeah. I'm sure like because they like found their niche with people who wanted to be international, those people probably called them exotic, but there's nothing like recorded that they got called exotic. But I nope. do know what you mean. Okay. I didn't know which path we were taking and I wanted to set the scene for my head. <laughs> that was helpful. In 1941, they went from performing on the Mississippi Black Club circuit, which was called the Chitlin circuit, and became national stars. They added a couple more ladies who were white and began to tour the country. They were actively discriminated against in the South and on more than one occasion were denied service. But these women just kept going and doing their thing. When the draft was issued during World War II, lots of industries were left scrambling because all the men folk had to go to war. One of those industries was big band jazz. So these ladies took up the mantle and started performing for troops and entertaining all the people who were into big jazz bands stateside. One of the members was named Tiny Davis. That was her nickname. And she was a trumpeter known as the female Louis Armstrong. And Louis Armstrong was actually a fan of hers. So I'm sure like that felt really, really nice for both of them. Unfortunately, the group kind of stopped performing in 1946 and officially disbanded, banded, disbanded. Thank you. Uh, In 1949, as their celebrity faded due to the rise in popularity of R&B, They did have a spike in popularity in the 60s and 70s with the women's liberation movement. They kind of were seen as uh, pioneers in both women's rights and Black women's rights. So it was like, look, they're anti-racist, as anti-racist as you can be. 
and anti-women's oppression. So we love them. They're now more prominent in women's study circles over like music study circles. You know, we're doing it right now. We're not a music podcast. We're a women's history podcast. Uh, you know, but that's a larger conversation about how society values women's contributions. The end. You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes the transcript of this episode. I didn't say and because I was so used to the other way. You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on ladyhistorypod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Instagram at girlbum.productions. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, I don't know the Indiana Jones theme song, actually. I thought I did. But we aren't talking about Indiana Jones. We're talking about the wives of the archaeologist. And I don't even think Indiana Jones had a wife. So it doesn't even matter. We're talking about the ladies. I haven't even seen all the Indiana Joneses. So it's a- <laughs> I, love, I love the lack of knowledge about Indiana Jones you have. Indiana Jones did not have a wife. He had a child out of wedlock with Marion. I, surprised. You mean Shia LaBeouf? I, have not- I do mean Shia LaBeouf, actually. Yeah, really? I- Thank <laughs> you.